Please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. As you are turning there, I will read this passage in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's a very familiar passage, but there's reason why we're going over these particular texts in the book of Genesis. We read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. The coming of our Lord is described using a comparison of the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be towards the end in which the Lord will return. And we had talked about as we started this last week that we're going over certain passages of Scripture. We're going over certain figures within the Scripture because they are used as examples within the New Testament. Or certain sacrificial uh, parts of the law are used as examples in the New Testament. So when we come to those passages, we want to understand the full view of what is happening. uh, The full view as to why the New Testament writer is using this as an example to convey this, this great truth about the Lord or about His coming or about faith and what faith is to be like and the father of faith, which would be, like, which would be Abraham and all this. So we have all these examples. We have all of that in the New Testament. We want to understand those passages to a greater extent. And in order to do so, we have to go back and see what those writers are referencing and why. So this evening... We're looking at Genesis chapter 6. Specifically, we're going to go through verses 1 to 8. Now, the entirety of this account stretches over a few chapters. But just as it was when we began in Genesis chapter 3, we've seen how the fall took place. We've seen why all mankind is in sin. We see the need for the Savior. We see the first announcement of the Savior. And all of that sets the foundation for the rest of the Scripture and especially the coming of Christ in the New Testament. Tonight we're looking at Noah. We're looking at the circumstances that were surrounding the time of Noah. And what do we learn from this particular particular passage uh, in regards to the coming of Christ? Because this passage is used, or this account is used, to give an example of what the world's going to be like when the Lord returns. So we need to understand what was going on in that day. We want to know uh, what... Why is, why is Noah, for example, used as an example of faith? You know, there's a number of things to look at here. <clears throat> so we want to understand this as much as we can so that when we get to those New Testament passages that we see clearly why the writer is using that. We look at those passages and we say, ah, I get it. Because this was going on in that day and now he's using that as an example for this. And it only enhances the meaning of what we find within the New Testament. So we do want to absolutely hit uh, the account of Noah. Now, 
this again spans a few chapters. So as we're just going over chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, you know, when you get home, you know, for the remainder of the week or whatever, then read the full account, the full account of the flood. <clears throat> Noah is truly a great example of faith. He is one who walked in obedience, and his faith is to be admired because of the days in which he lived. We think that we have, have it bad now. We, we think the world is so vile and wicked now, but when we look to the days of Noah, I don't think we're quite there yet. Not yet. The people in this day were the most vile and wicked, and, and so much so. I mean, think of this. So much so that nothing short of a near total destruction of the entire human race was necessary. Because that's what's going to happen. We see the great justice of God getting ready to be poured out on a deserving world because of their vileness and their wickedness. God is holy, and because He is holy, nothing short of an almost annihilation of the human race was necessary. So there's a number of things we're going to look at. I'm sure there's going to be some of this that you would like to delve into further, and you are more than welcome to do that. But that's not going to be so much of our focus this evening, and you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. <clears throat> but we want to understand a couple things. What was the world like? What was God's uh, emotion towards it? What was his disposition towards it? And then looking at Noah as a great example of faith. So we're going to look at this together. We're just going to jump right in. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to it. Verse 1. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, Father, we ask that you would move within our hearts tonight, that you would engage our minds to this passage, that we would learn from it, that we would grow, grow in our understanding of what's pleasing to you, in our understanding of your very nature, 
and what it is that you delight in. The Father, teach us tonight, and we pray that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us to bring these things to reality, not just to see it as a story or an account within Scripture, but to understand it as a, a history as it is intended to be and to see your interaction with man. Father, bless us with your word. And may it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, beginning this passage, <laughs> there's obviously a lot of questions on this, and there's a whole lot of debate on it. Now, we left off in Genesis chapter 3 that we had the fall of man. We had the curse being given not only to, to Adam and Eve, but we saw the curse uh, that came upon Satan himself. As you get into chapters 4 and 5, you see the beginnings of civilization. You see uh, the first real murder that had taken place where Cain kills his brother Abel. It leads us up to Genesis chapter 6. That as men began to multiply on the face of the land, or on the face of the earth, depending on your translation, and daughters were born to them, that we read of this very interesting account, this wording. It says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. He goes on to say, We'll come back to verse 3 in just a little bit. But he goes on to say in verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty, were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now there's a variety of opinions on who the sons of God are. <clears throat> just to go through just these three main ones. Actually, I don't know of any other three but these, or any other opinions, rather, but these three. You have an understanding by some that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth. That after Cain had killed Abel, they had another child. His name was Seth. He was one who is looked at as walking in faith and being obedient to the Lord and all of this. And the sons of God are regarded as his particular bloodline, intermingling with the daughters of men, which would be the daughters of Cain. Cain having killed his brother, Cain being a murderer, a reprobate. And so they see this as the godly line of Seth, intermingling with the daughters of men. And they look to certain prohibitions that are given within the Old Testament of how you're not to to intermarry with those who are idolaters and all of this uh, sort of thing. Things that we've went over in Nehemiah and Ezra. Enemies of God. We see passages in the New Testament that would imply such things. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, to only marry within the Lord, as Paul says. Uh, so some people would look at this and, and would come to that conclusion that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, intermingling with the daughters of men, meaning the daughters of Cain. Another view is that these sons of God are regarded as rulers or kings, monarchs. 
that these are, are those that are, that are committing polygamy. They're taking of the daughters of men, whomever they desired, <clears throat> that their sin was so great that they are committing uh, this particular sin, ends up arousing the anger of the Lord. Now, with these two particular uh, views, a couple of things to look at, and we'll get to the third in just a moment. But to say that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, intermingling with the daughters of Cain, thus far within Scripture, there is no command for separation. There is no command given that you are not to intermingle with these particular people groups over here who came from Cain. There's no prohibitions there. Also, as far as rulers and kings, there's no evidence that any, uh, any system like that was even brought about yet of monarchs and, and, and kings and all of that. Uh, they hadn't been established yet, at least not from what we read in Scripture. And not only that, but no writer of Scripture ever considered kings to be a, de- a deity of any kind or, or a son of a deity. No writer of Scripture ever referred to a king or a ruler in that kind of language. So there's a third option, which is the most ancient of all the views. In the uh, pseudo-epigraphal books uh, that were before the time of Christ, they would affirm this. Josephus affirmed it. Philo affirmed it. Uh, Some of the early church fathers, like Justin Martyr, Tertullian... These all affirm this particular view I'm getting ready to tell you now. The sons of God, in their view, are angels. And the reason why they would say that they're angels is every instance in in the Old Testament in which this language is used, the sons of God, it always refers to angelic beings. And just hold your place there in Genesis 6, and this way you you can lay eyes on it as well and you can see it. In Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, verse 6, the scripture says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. This is the angelic host that are coming to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan is required to be there as well. In the same book, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Again, angelic host. Also in the book of Job, Chapter 38, chapter 38, we'll jump in verse 3, that way you can see the context of this. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? 
on what were its bases sunk, or who, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, that language, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, sons of God. Every time that it's used, it's in reference to angelic hosts. And though this is another debated passage, there in Daniel chapter 3, in Daniel 3, this is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the fiery furnace. We read in verse 25, after they're thrown in, and they look into the midst of the fire, and they don't see three people, now they see four. He said, look, I see four men, this is verse 25, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And though it's translated as son of the gods, it's the same, the same as it is in Job, as it is in Genesis. So there's debate there in which we could say the Son of God, meaning Christ himself, or they sent an angel there to also protect him who is regarded as a Son of God, as it is in Genesis 6 and those three passages in Job. Just to give us a little bit more understanding, this is, in this view, the sons of God, the angels that are taking for themselves, these are fallen angels, taking for themselves wives, whomever they choose. Now, people will look at this and say, well, Jesus says that angels are not given in marriage. They don't, when he's confronted by the Pharisees, he says, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven, he says. As far as in the resurrection and the idea of marriage and all of that. But notice that he says they're like the angels in heaven. They're not married. He doesn't say anything more to elaborate on the possibility of what that could have been in the beginning. He simply just makes a statement to say that angels are not given in marriage. The angels in heaven are not given in marriage. That's all he says. Now there's a lot of people that would take that and try to put more meaning in there than what's there. But that's all Jesus says about it. Now, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first 10 verses here, but pay, pay close attention here. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Listen to the context, listen to the description here. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words." Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, 
And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of, the unpr of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now, the context of what he's talking about is destructive heresies and those who follow them follow after their sensuality. And then he begins to bring up the angels who sinned. He brings up the ancient world. He brings up Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings up Lot. And in those instances, you're finding sensuality running, around, running rampant. And just to add to that, in Jude, Jude only has one chapter, but verses 5 to 8, listen to this. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Jude, using the very same examples as Peter, brings them out again. Peter talks about the angels who sinned. He is cast into hell and they're reserved for the day of judgment. But we understand that there's demons loose on the earth, and we understand that demons are present, and we see them in the New Testament. So why were these specific ones cast into hell? And then Jude brings up the same ones who did not keep their own domain. They abandoned their proper abode. Same, same group of angels he's talking about that are being kept in bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then he brings up the cities that committed such great sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he even says, And the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as examples undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. These went after strange flesh. These went after strange flesh. That's the connection. That's the comparison. So when we're looking at all of that put together, the language that's used in Genesis, the language that's used in Job, the language that's used in Second Peter and in Jude, speaking of the time of Noah, speaking of a certain group of angels that went after strange flesh, we come to Genesis 6, and we can, in my opinion, we can rightly look at this and say that the sons of God that are being spoken of here are indeed angels, fallen angels. Their identity there. It gives us a great understanding. It helps to give us a clear understanding of why they would do this, especially when the announcement of the Redeemer coming through the woman's seed was announced back in Genesis 3. What would be the one thing that Satan would try to do but to corrupt the seed? 
that would make sense by having some of his fallen ones to try to do that. It also gives some clear understanding at possibly the origins of Greek and Roman mythology of the gods dwelling and cohabiting with women. Where did it start? Well, this gives us a really good example. And especially when you go to that passage in Second Peter, when Peter says that the angels who sinned, he cast them into hell. That's the only place in the New Testament ever that this word for hell is used, and it's Tartarus. It's not Hades, it's not Gehenna, it's Tartarus. Now, if you go back to Greek mythology, where was it that the Titans were cast down to Tartarus? So when you put in all that together, it would make a lot of sense, giving us the origin of Greek and Roman mythology, but it makes a lot of sense as to where it would come from that these were angelic beings. Now, what did they do? And that, by all means, you can go back and look. If you have a differing opinion, that's fine, too. There's no one consensus on this. They're, they're cohabiting with women. They're, they're corrupting mankind. It says, uh, just in passing there, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Uh, just so you notice this, that the Nephilim are not the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They're not the offspring of that. Because the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. We see them popping up in, I think it's Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. When they're getting ready to go into Jericho. And they say, the Nephilim are there. It's talking about the sons of Anakim. Not Anakin. Anakim. Just so we know that. So, the Nephilim are there, even after the flood. So the implication is that's not, that's not the offspring of that union. The offspring of that union were the mighty men, the men of renown. Uh, the mighty men usually refers to within Scripture the, the military men. And the men of renown, that extends... As one writer says, it extends to those well known for wealth or political power. They were known for their, their skill and they were known for their strength. Now, however this union occurred, whether it was angelic beings that possessed men, I don't know. We know that angels can come in the form of men. I don't know how that worked back then. I would not pretend to know. But in either instance, we do know that possessed people in the New Testament had great power. In order to break chains and, and to, to fight off seven men as it was uh, the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts. So if you have that kind of a situation going on where these angelic beings are possessing men or they're appearing as men or whatever. And they're being very powerful. They're, they're getting well known and they have power within the earth. They're the men of renown. They're the mighty men. They would be great military men. But they're corrupting the world. They're helping to corrupt the world. And the very thing that you find here, it's like, so if this is going on, and it's the angelic beings that are doing this, the fallen ones, then why is he punishing man? Why is it that the Lord sees the wickedness of man? Well, we know the, these particular angelic beings are going to be judged. They're being held and reserved right now, and they will receive their judgment. But the implication seems to be that man's corruption... Was, was 
to the extent that he was cooperating with these fallen ones in rebellion against the Lord. They're willingly partaking in this, this gross immorality, this, this strange union. They're indulging in it. They're delighting in it. And they're being corrupted all the more as they begin to do this. So much so that he's saying that the whole earth is corrupted. Because you have this, this continual degradation that is occurring. And man is becoming even more and more wicked. Allying themselves with demons and rebellion against God. Knowingly. That is a very corrupt world indeed. Now sometimes we look at the things that are going on in our own day and we see how you know, the abortion issue is, is really hot right now you know, with, with everything with the Supreme Court and all of that. People are going nuts because of the thought that they can't kill their babies. And you look at that and you say, well, that's demon influence. And granted, I, have, I absolutely believe that. You look at the LGBT stuff that's going on and you say, that has to be demon influenced. And I absolutely agree with that too. They're going after strange flesh. That's what the scripture said about Sodom and Gomorrah. These things are being influenced. But the interesting thing about the secular world is that they're just thinking that they're doing whatever they want to do, not understanding that they're being influenced to do those things as well. These in the ancient world understood where the influence was coming, delighted in that influence, and carried out those desires willingly, knowing who they were from. Regardless of all the things that God had demonstrated to the people up to this point, His grace and His mercy that He shows even then, because God's common grace has always been, no doubt, his common grace would have been in that day too. Certain ones that had walked with God were present within that ancient world. And just as Noah, being a preacher of righteousness, so too they would have done the same. But rejecting all of that, rejecting the grace of God, rejecting the, the knowledge of God and indulging in all the desires of their hearts, they became... Corrupted. Not just a minimal corruption here, but truly corrupted in the deepest sense of the word that we can conjure up. That was the ancient world. And you see that it was such an extent of, of that kind of degradation that you see the disposition of the Lord in regards to it. Verse 6 says, or excuse me, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Listen, listen to this description. That every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There weren't any good thoughts. There weren't any thoughts that Maybe we ought to do right by one another. These are thoughts that are evil continually. Every thought of his heart was evil continually. No good. And in response to this, the Lord was very sorry that he had made man on the earth. 
And he was grieved in his heart at the condition of his creation in which he had formerly said, it's good. Now look at the corruption of it. Now what does this mean? Because we need to go over that. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. Does that mean that the Lord had a, had a change of mind in the sense of, I wish I hadn't have done that. I regret the day I ever made man on the earth. I wish I could go back and do it differently or whatever we can throw in there. That's not what it means. The Lord doesn't change his mind. The Lord doesn't wish he had done something differently because everything the Lord does is absolutely perfect. There's always plan A, never plan B. Never. Everything that comes to pass is decreed by the sovereign creator. So if that's true, then what does this mean? There's a few different passages of scripture that express that kind of language. And you can jot these down if you'd like. One of them is in Numbers chapter 23. This is actually giving us a better understanding of what it is not. Numbers 23, verse 19. Listen to what, listen to what he says here. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not also do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So, what the writer is saying there, Moses, who is the same author of Genesis, is saying the very recording these same words about the very character and the nature of God, that he's not a man that he lies. He's not a man that he repents as a man repents. When we repent, we have a change of mind. We see something that we did, it was a mistake, and Lord, forgive me for doing that particular thing. If I could go back, I would have done it differently. That's, that's the idea of, of being sorry for something or repenting. We're, we're seeing the mistake and we're turning from it. So there was a change in mind. There was a change in our actions based on new knowledge that has come to us. That's not how it operates with the Lord because the Lord doesn't get any new knowledge. He knows all things at all times. So in 1 Samuel chapter 15... This is very interesting. Of course, you have the same, the one author who's writing 1 Samuel there. 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. Actually, back up verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. He just says, I regret that I made Saul king. In the very same chapter, verse 29. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. And yet you have the language earlier on in the chapter that the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. But then he goes on to say, I don't change my mind. 
So how do you reconcile all that? Well, we reconcile it with that very understanding that the Lord is not a man like us. He does not regret as we do. He does not feel sorry as we do. But what it is doing is giving us some human terms that we can understand the very disposition of God in regards to this sinful, wicked world in which He is currently seeing it. You have to understand God is not stoic. He is not a robot. He has emotions. We know He has emotions because we're created in the image of God and we have emotions. And God has emotions. And when these, the, this, this whole corrupt system is coming about and He's seeing what all is going on in His creation, He doesn't just sit idly by as a, as a robot having no emotion about it. He is demonstrating that, as he goes on to say, he is grieved in his heart over the sins that are being done, over the wickedness that is running all over the earth, and the very thing that he's going to do about it is to judge the earth and wipe them out. He is grieved in his heart over this very thing that he, in the very beginning, had decreed to come to pass. But as it comes to that point, he is demonstrating his disposition towards what's happening. It's like the Lord doesn't, as the, the scripture says also, the Lord doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked. It's not something that brings him such amusement in order to destroy wicked people. He doesn't take delight in it. He is showing us how he responds and how he feels, if you will, we we'll use that word feels, about sin and about wickedness and evil and transgression abominations that are happening in the world. He's grieved. But it expresses it in human terms that we can somewhat comprehend the emotions of our transcendent Creator. We can have some idea of, of how He feels or how He responds his response, not only is he feeling this, not only is he grieved in his heart, but going back to verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now, the Lord is not giving a new lifespan for men. He's only going to live 120 years He's giving a countdown to the end of the men that are on the earth. This is, a, this is a time frame that he's giving. In 120 years, it's coming to an end. He says, My spirit shall not always or shall not strive with man forever. Two possible interpretations of that, and it's often translated as well. My spirit shall not always abide in man forever. Now, what does this mean? Some take it to mean that this is speaking of the spirit of God, the, the ruah, uh, the convicting agent or the restraining force of God. Because of, of the wickedness and the rebellion, God would cease to be uh, mercifully convicting hearts and, and restraining their wickedness. And instead, he's going to... Withhold it and bring judgment. So we know from the scripture that even those that don't have the law have a law of their conscience that restrains them from doing wickedness, as we read in Romans chapter 2. Well, perhaps 
they have gone so far that as we also read in Romans, he hands them over to a depraved mind and they continue down their degradation. It could also mean the spirit uh, referring to the breath of God that he breathed into the clay when man became a living soul. And now the Lord is threatening to remove it. And this is pointing to the impending death of all the earth. My spirit will not always abide in man. His, his breath of life, if you will. And he's getting ready to remove it. And he's getting ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. To blot them out, as he goes on to say. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And he gives the countdown. 120 years, this is going to happen. God doesn't delight in wickedness. He's not stoic. So as not to feel anything, he's not a robot. He is grieved over his creation. And in response to their wickedness, his holiness cries out for justice. And this justice will come in his appointed time, which, as he's saying there, is going to be in 120 years. But, you know, that, that really does help us in, some, in, a, in a certain way as well to understand that, that God is not emotionless especially with all the vile things that are going on in the world today. We look and we say, does he not, why, why does he not do anything? Why, is, he, is he just not feeling anything? I mean, is he just blank? No. We can understand from the Scripture that God is grieved at the things that take place in this world. He is grieved at uh, uh, the things that are taking place on a grand scale as far as the evil and the corruption and all of that. He doesn't delight in these things. He uses them to accomplish his purpose because that's how he decreed it. He uses the evil, the evil man for the evil day, as he says. He turns the heart of the king just like a channel of water. All of these things that we read of in Scripture speaking of his sovereignty. But this doesn't mean that he is just cut off from emotion in that sense that he doesn't care. Because he does. And it grieves him not only for the things that go on in this world, but it grieves him too about the sin in our own lives. He doesn't delight in that. And that's why the scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God by the sins that we, that we commit. And just as it was that God was patient in these days, in the days of Noah, the days that led up to it, so too He is patient in these days. And that's why He's not bringing swift judgment. And it is a little bit selfish of us. Uh, in one sense, to pray for that swift judgment to come. <clears throat> in one way, we want to cry out as those in the intermediate state in Revelation 20, how long, O oh Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? But in another way, too, we have to understand that however long the Lord is going to tarry, that He tarries on account of those for whom His Son gave His life. And so he's patient, not willing for any of his people to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in the time in which the last one comes, then the Lord will take his vengeance. And he will do it on a grand global scale, just as he does with the flood.
<clears throat> now, even in light of all the wickedness that's happening, all of those that have corrupted themselves, following after strange flesh, following after the influence of demonic beings in rebellion against their Creator, one man found favor in the eyes of God, or found grace in the eyes of God. One. And that was Noah. Now, if you do a timeline on this whole thing, you'll find out that Methuselah was still alive. Methuselah died the year of the flood. He didn't die in the flood, it seems. He died the year of, though. And so it wasn't necessarily that Noah was the only person on earth that had received the grace of God. He's going to be the only one that is going to be instrumental receiving the grace of God that's going to pass on into the world after the flood. You know, there's only like very few that are ever spoken of uh, from the creation of man on or from the fall on that had followed the Lord. And Noah is indeed one of them. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first time grace, this word for grace, is ever used. We didn't read verse 9, but just as a little bit more information about who he is, he's a righteous man. He's blameless in his time, and he walks with God. We think we have it hard in the world that we live in. It's just so difficult. Well, we definitely can't say that here in America. We just find it so difficult because of all the distractions and of all the evil and the things that we have to contend with and all of this. This time doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't even compare to the time of Noah and what Noah himself had to endure, and yet he walked with God. He obeyed God. He was a righteous man. He followed the law of God of what was revealed at that time. Here's a man who was a preacher of righteousness, as the Scripture said that we read earlier. Here's a man that has received this understanding of what is getting ready to happen. And in view of all the sin and the wickedness in the world, what, what he doesn't do is to just gather his family to himself and say, okay, we're just going to stick together here. We're not going to go out among these people over here and we're going to build this big boat. And then, then we'll be taken care of. He's a preacher. He's a, he's a herald. He's one who is announcing. He's, he's calling people to repentance. Now, what kinds of things must he have endured? It'd be hard for us to understand the things that he probably endured, considering the kind of world in which he lived. And yet, he feared the Lord. He delighted in the Lord. And we know these things because he walked in obedience with the Lord. He walked with the Lord. He was blameless. He was righteous. He did what was right by his fellow man. And he did what was right by the Lord. And so... We come to those conclusions. He feared the Lord. He delighted in Him. He obeyed the voice of His God. He preached to the lost. Because He was a preacher of righteousness, He most likely endured such hostility from them against Himself as a result of what He's preaching and a result of the impending doom that He's calling them to understand. This is coming. Probably being ridiculed for building a big boat out in the desert. What's He going to do with that thing? Mocked, ridiculed, slandered. And the very thing that Noah did that they did not, 
he believed the Lord. He believed what the Lord said was happening and was going to happen because his actions demonstrated his belief. It's one thing to say, I believe this or I believe that or whatever. It's another thing that you take certain steps in following after what it is that you believe. If I believe something's going to happen, I'm going to take certain precautions or whatever to prepare. Somebody can say, well, this is going to happen. Yeah, probably will. And then I go on about my business. I really don't believe it. I'm demonstrating by my actions I don't. But what does Noah do? He builds it. How long did it take him to build it? Well, that's another source of debate. Some think between 40 and 70 years, somewhere like that. Noah was 500 years old whenever his sons were born to him. The flood came in year 600 of his life, so he had to have time for his sons to grow up, his sons to get wives, and then to begin building the ark. So some say between maybe 40 to 70 years, whatever it was. But he spent all that time building the ark, being a preacher of righteousness, up until the time in which the Lord said, Get in, and the Lord closes the door, and the time is done. And when you look in the New Testament passage that we read earlier, that the coming of the Son of Man is going to be as it was in the days of Noah, they had no idea that it was really going to happen. They were marrying, giving in marriage, they were eating, they were drinking, they were having a good time, indulging in all the things that they did beforehand, and they did not know it until the flood came. And they were carried off. This is what it's going to be like at the time of, our, of the Lord's coming. Based on this kind of a world, on this kind of a situation and circumstance, the Lord is using this as a comparison. That doesn't necessarily mean that at the time of the Lord when He comes that there's only going to be maybe one, two people on earth who believe in Him. Not necessarily. But it, does it definitely seem, perhaps, that the majority of those in the earth are going to be the unbelieving? Seems to be that. Passages in the book of Revelation seem to imply that as well. But in the time in which we think He won't come, in the time in which the unbelieving rather expect that nothing's going to happen, is a time in which the Lord will bring it all to completion. This is the time in which the Lord will bring global judgment, just as He did here. And He will set all things right. What does he call us to do in the meantime, though? You know, we were talking about it in our men's Bible study, how it is that some who hold to a post-millennial view of the end times, and the post-millennial view is they think that through the preaching of the gospel that the world will eventually become converted to the gospel, and the major areas of life are going to be dominated by the gospel, by the Christian faith, not necessarily meaning everybody's going to be converted, but the majority then would be Christian, and then the Lord will return. So even from their point of view, they think that perhaps we might still be in the early church. Maybe we've got another 3,000 years or 4,000 years to go. Who knows? And maybe the Lord will tarry that long. We don't know. seems as if every generation thinks they're in, their last, they're in the last days in the sense of we're all in the last days. But in the last days in the sense of the Lord is coming back at any moment. And granted, he could. 
But if he tarries for 3,000 years, you know what he's going to command the people in 1,000, 2,000 years after us to do? The very same thing that he's commanding us to do, the very same thing that he commanded Noah to do, a consistency throughout the scripture of what God calls his people to do. Honor him, obey him, walk with him, love him, delight in him, trust in him. And when the world is growing darker and darker, keep your eyes fixed upon him. These are the things that we're commanded to do because that's what Noah did. Any generation that comes thereafter, these are the very same things that they're going to be doing as well, being commanded to do. Do not lose heart over what is happening or what will happen. If anybody had reason to lose heart, it was probably Noah. He's going to send a global flood and everybody's going to die. Except for me, my wife, my three sons, and their wives. Think of that. An earth that is possibly populated as much as it is now. I mean, because before the flood, they were living hundreds and hundreds of years old, thinking how many kids you could have to populate the earth. And then to hear that announcement, everybody's going to die except you all. I'm taking them out. And we're going to start over with you guys. You think that the sense of urgency wasn't on his lips? Compelling the lost to come? And having no results from it? For 120 years they had. Nobody else was saved. Except eight people. And yet, he didn't lose heart. He trusted in what the Lord said was going to happen, even though he couldn't see it until it happened. These are the things that we need to look at when we're looking in these passages of the necessity of the people of God to just keep focused. Keep our eyes on the Lord. Keep walking in obedience, doing the things that we know that we should. Because the time is going to come in which we can't do it anymore. Because the Lord's going to bring us home. But we need to set things in motion for the next generations to carry it on as well. We're only a blip and then we're gone. A vapor and we're gone. But we have to prepare ourselves to do what's right. And prepare the next generations to keep carrying on until the coming of the Lord. Let, let the account of Noah be a great encouragement to us in our evangelism and in our walk with the Lord in times of great darkness. Don't be in despair. Keep looking up. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about you, about your holiness and your justice, about your mercy and your grace. Father, let us understand how grievous sin is to you. And Father, help us to walk rightly, to do right, to call others to repentance as well. Never to trust in our own selves and our own devices, but always to trust in you. Help us to prepare the next generations to walk in obedience, 
and to demonstrate to them a true delight in the Lord in our own lives. Thank you so much for all that you are and all that you do for us in Christ Jesus and the privilege that we have of knowing you and of serving you. Do you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.